Progressive Podcast from Impact 89FM. It's not a volunteer program. You get full salary and benefits, and you're also you know changing these students' lives. Wow. So it's a very um, powerful movement. Yeah, it sounds like a pretty intense program, though. It's, yeah, it's yeah, a big definitely. Time limit. You're you're immersed yeah, right in that. It's school. very challenging, and that's why they're you know they're very selective and very um, um the application process is kind of um you know geared towards you know trying to recruit the most outstanding and those with leadership positions and those with high academic potential. You know, hmm. they don't they know that it's very challenging to go into low, these low income schools and to really uh, get um, these you know high expectations for these students out there so sure now you yeah. mentioned uh, you know these are low-income schools these mm -hmm. are schools that need the, be the best teachers most yeah, of all that's true uh, so what what sort of places do students get placed in like what, what sort of cities what across okay. the country well um, if you get accepted you'll be placed in one of 26 sites and they're always expanding um, right now um, almost all the major cities have a, a, a placement site you can check out the website at teachformer.org where they have each site's you know and a description of each. But um, in front of me, there's you know from New York City to Los Angeles, like what I said earlier. There's also sites in Chicago, South Dakota, um, New Mexico, Houston, uh, Miami, Atlanta. So um, you name it, most of the major cities do have a um, this great need for mm -hmm. um, these recent college grads to really. Um, given their all, you know, to teach and to really inspire these kids for two years and to get, you know, achievement out of these low-income students. So um, definitely there's lots of, you know, options of placement. Excellent. Now, uh, so are you looking for students that are education department students, or I mean, are, or does it go beyond that? Yeah, it goes beyond that. Um, teach from Mercy is teaching as leadership and as, you know, preparation to wherever you want to go. That's why they recruit from all different majors and backgrounds. Mm. So, therefore, you don't have to be an education major. You can be, um, you know, biology. Because, like, there's this great need of science and math teachers. So, that's why they're, one of the recruitment goals is in the math and science um, kind of division of Teach for America. They want more to recruit more math and science majors because the need is great. And um, so, Definitely, you know, it's open to anyone and everyone. So they also look for diversity, you know, of mm. different racial backgrounds and different educational experiences. Because 95% of these low-income students that Teach for America outreaches to are either African-American or Hispanic. Oh. Now I can see that, you know, this education crosses both racial and social boundaries. That's sure. why it's not just an educational movement. I consider it as, you know, kind of also... A social movement in, in, in a sense. Yeah, and I'm sure you know students uh, are going to respond, be, you know, better to yes. some that you know may look a little bit more familiar. I suppose. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Huh. So now, uh, is this something? Or do you have to be fresh out of college to get involved, or can you be uh, you know a couple years down the road? Like I'm still not sure what I want yeah. to do. What What's the time frame for for um, Basically, the requirement is you need to have a bachelor's degree. So most um, most people apply during their senior year before they graduate. Mm -hmm. And, but if you just if you graduated a couple years ago and you have a bachelor's degree, you can apply. That's basically the fundamental requirements is having a bachelor's degree before you start the training or the institution, and um, and a two five minimum GPA in college. So that's the fundamental requirements. Everything else is basically, um, you know, anything. Just gotta have that spirit. Yeah, just have that spirit. <laughs> yep. Very nice. So now, just kind of looking at, at you know. Regular teachers, for example, traditionally educated mm -hmm. teachers in, in, in you know, elementary schools and everything like that, compared to Teach for America teachers, how does it stack up? Is it pretty comparable, or, or what are the numbers look like? Yeah, um, of course there's this very, um, crit criticism, you know, that because these Teach for America teachers aren't, you know, 
um, weren't you know teaching majors when they were um, an undergrad. There's this, this criticism that they won't perform as well as you know some other beginning teachers who went through all the um, te all the education training during their schooling. Um, and then there's actually a study that's been cited a lot by Teach for America where um, where the principal is like 90, 90 or so percent of the principals say that their Teach for America teacher in that school is if not the same or better than oh, wow. other beginning teachers. Also, there's been other research that's been done by independent firms that talk about the um, that Teach for America teachers are just as good, if not better, than other beginning teachers. So the training um, that Teach for America provides at institution this summer, and also the training that you get by going to grad school for certification during during your teaching process is you know is definitely um, helpful and needed for the for these Teach for America core members. So then you're kind of weighing out whether or not to go back to school can consider yeah. Teach for America as you know just just as viable if not better of an alternative mm -hmm. really. Correct. Very cool. So now I, yeah, in fact, uh, I was reading a little bit about this uh, you know earlier today, getting ready for the show and everything, yeah, sure. and uh, uh, yeah, I was looking at some of the studies that, that you've mentioned that. Uh, in fact, m you know, math and science subjects tested, you know, typically even better than than uh, uh, traditional educated teachers. You know, the Teach for America uh, teachers did, I should say. Um, you know, I mean, that's just uh, kind of speaks to the, you know, the quality of the program. I would think. Yeah, that's that's another reason why it's very selective, and they're recruiting, you know, for the most you know, talented and able. Um, recent college grants. Nice. So, as far as the applicants go, uh, what are what are some of the practical benefits for uh, becoming involved with Teach for America? Um, basically, this program is very prestigious. You know, mm -hmm. um, it has its roots in the Ivy Leagues. It was actually a um, a, a senior thesis that kind of mm -hmm. grew out to this whole program from Wendy Kopp, who is the current president and the founder of this organization in 1990. So. Um, Basically, it's very prestigious, very well-known, a public service kind of deed that many people can embark on. And um, right now, actually, a recent publication that came out uh, from Business Week magazine is ranked number 10 as the best places to launch a career um, for recent college grads. So wow. definitely, it's a great place to jumpstart your career, career wherever you go, whether it's you know, law, medicine, business, um, because teaching is such a kind of challenging and profound and enriching experience that a lot of other kind of sectors like the business and graduate schools um, understand and realize that w the, the leadership development that you go through with Teach for America can really prepare you and make you a better kind of all-around leader wherever you go and wherever fields um, sectors that you may find yourself in like is 10 years down the road. Yeah, yeah. Is that something you think that employers see when they're looking at a resume that says yeah, Teach definitely. for America two years? Yeah. I mean, do they say leadership in there? Is that yeah, what it is? definitely. It's a lot of leadership, you know, because the core, I guess, is teaching as leadership. That's the philosophy that Teach for America kind of pounds. And um, all the, you know, managing like a classroom, it's similar to kind of managing in other leadership roles. I think they maybe more challenging in yeah, some places. <laughs> correct, yes. That's why, you know, it's such a challenging and rewarding experience hmm. in itself, this program. So, uh, in addition to leadership, I mean, that's that sounds like the biggest reason to, mm -hmm. to the biggest thing people get out of it. Yeah. What, what else could you say that, that, that um, is well, an advantage? You're basically helping American society, I guess. Wow. This nation. In a small order. <laughs> yeah, in a small order, like indirectly, because yeah. you are kind of in this movement in educational inequity which is a very pressing issue um, in this nation currently and we're trying to bridge that gap you know of educational opportunity and the growth for these low-income students and um, definitely like the, the 
the improvement that you see of your students and how much you put in and how much they kind of put in and how like you're growing together. It's definitely enriching experience both personally mm -hmm. and on society as a whole because um, these students are you know underserved and underprivileged and most college students because they went to college you know and they come from backgrounds that's you know more privileged and they had this opportunity to go to college so why not kind of give that opportunity to these you know low-income students that might not even have that opportunity if not for these teachers that are teaching them and these recent college grads that's going into Teach for America Corps to really inspire that. Sure. And, yeah. So now, from the the perspective of the school, uh, you know, we, of course, we mentioned about some you know independent reports saying Teach for America teachers are great and all that. Do the do the school uh, administration do they see it in the same way? Like, oh, great, we're getting a Teach for America teacher, or are they kind of skeptical? Well, most schools that Teach for America has um, core in and has partnerships with do realize that. It, I guess as a whole, Amer like teaching the field of teaching is you know is a need, mm -hmm. just like medicine. Like teaching, we're always looking for teachers. Like I heard, like the baby boomer generation, you know, is like retiring, and there's a great need for teachers in general, mm -hmm. and even a greater need for these low-income communities. So these schools and these low-income communities, the administration, they're like pretty receptive because they really need these teachers, sure. and especially Teach for America teachers who are although young, but really motivated and passionate and really wanting to make a difference in these students' lives and really wanting to, to build those relationships to give these students a better future. Um, so, so personally speaking, what got you involved with Teach for America in the um, first place? I actually got an email um, a few years back, my um, the summer uh, after my sophomore year. Mm. Um, so for a position that I have now as campus campaign coordinator, so basically what I do is I help out with recruitment efforts on campus, do some flyering, do some announcements, stuff like this. Mm -hmm. And um, this is my second year doing it as a senior. And I actually recently got into Teach for America because I applied during the first deadline. Um, so I'll be teaching special ed in New York City next year. Wow. As part of the 2008 Teach for America. So you'll be living in the city too, huh? Yeah, definitely. Wow, that's pretty exciting, I'm sure. Yeah. Are you anxious to go? Yeah, pretty excited. <laughs> yeah. So now, did you choose special education? Was that something that was chosen um, for you? Yeah, I, I checked the box where it says open to special ed. So they placed me there because there's a great need of special ed um, in New York City. They call um, special education the achievement gap within the achievement gap. So oh, wow. um, it's the even greater need for the special ed you know, students to get that you know, support and get that, um, uh, that teacher to really help them out you know, and develop individual curriculums and individual um, learning you know, support so they can really grow. Hmm. So now, once you once you graduated from MSU, mm -hmm. they don't just drop you right into the school, do they? I'm sure there's uh, some yeah, kind of there's you know, teaching you, yeah. and then you teach. Correct. So basically, um, there's the training in the summer. Um, teach for America calls it um, institute, and basically, it is a very intense training because they're trying to pack all you need to know as a beginning teacher in five six weeks of training. Basically, there's the training sites. There's three or four or five across the nation. Um, there's one in New York, one in Houston, Los Angeles. And basically, during the day, you're kind of practicing as a beginning teacher. You're, they put you in the classroom. And during the afternoon and night, it's all professional development. You're working with you know, veteran teachers, and you're working with you know, um, professors to teach you how to you know, better with the theory and methodology, how to teach better. And you're actually engaging it in the morning. So mm -hmm. the days are long, and it's very intense, but it's you know, needed to train you and to prepare you for these low-income schools that you're going to be given um, once the school year starts in August. So the so. education that you're getting through these training, mm -hmm. I guess training evenings, training programs, yeah. whatever, yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that's what compares to 
to the masters if you were going to just continue going to school. That's yeah. that's the same kind of education yeah. right yeah. there. And during your teaching, uh, actually, when you're teaching in these um, in these domes, most people do still need to get their certifications through mm -hmm. alternative routes. So there's partnerships with nearby graduate schools to get your alternative certification, or actually, a lot of them decide to get their masters at the same time. So you'll be teaching your your job, and then maybe on weekends you'll be going to school, going to classes, hmm. yeah, in the evenings. So. Um, definitely, it's um, like although you're a teacher, you're always learning as well, um, sure. teaching your students and also getting trained by more sure that, experienced individuals. I'm sure that part of it never ends, really. Yep, yep. Now you mentioned a moment ago that, you're, that you'll be doing special education. Mm -hmm. um, is there is there additional training that needs to go into that? I'm sure there's spe you know special yeah. needs is one mm -hmm. way to put it, I suppose. But yep. I'm sure you need to address those needs. Yeah, correct. I um, I'm not sure. I just um, they're still sending me more details on. Training, but basically, my I still have to pass the same basic tests mm -hmm. um, to get into these schools, and I also have to probably like I think training like as a whole is the same. Like I'll be teaching you know just the core subjects, and of course it'll be probably extra training for how to deal with special education students and maybe in classroom management aspect. And also since I'm a psychology major, I do still have some I still have I I have some experience with you know. Um, I guess learning as a whole, you know, sure. and how the brain works, yeah, how the brain works and stuff like that. So um, maybe that's that. I, I think that's one of the reasons why they place me in there because they see a good fit. Other than the fact that there's a great need there. Sure. So, so if someone's applying for Teach for America, you, you mentioned how, kind of how your background factored into mm -hmm. what you're what you will be doing. Yeah. What What do you think Teach for America looks for when they're you know evaluating some okay. uh, an applicant? Well, since I'm. I'm helping them with the recruitment. I also applied and got in. I guess um, <laughs> get all the, the secrets there. Yeah. Well, I'm not gonna expose any like all the secrets are actually online. Oh, they okay. tell you what they look for. Um, there's actually five or six um, skills and five or six core values that you need to have. You know mm -hmm. that needs to be expressed throughout your interviews. So basically, I guess to condense that, Teach for America looks for two main things. One is basically just leadership um, in in college. They see that if you have any type of leadership skill or potential in college, that you can kind of transition that into the classroom. Hmm. Actually, 95, actually it's rising, I think, 96% of Teach for America um, core members had leadership positions in college. So that's one thing. And the other thing is just academic um, academic achievement that they've, you know, um, kind of shown in college, um, either with um, high GPA or scholarships or other forms of um, writing papers, thesis, other forms, active. like those two are probably the most heavy factors. Of course, you still have to do well in interviews, and you have to kind of articulate all the core skills and values that they look for. But those two are probably the most significant factors that they look at when they look at uh, accept, uh, applicants as a whole. Also, one important thing to note is that um, when you're applying, you're not competing against other applicants. You're competing against the standard. Oh. That, and the core values and skills and what I just said earlier. So, like, for example, if a lot of M M MSU students apply, MSU students aren't going to compete against each other. They're just competing against the bar. If all, like, 100 MSU students who apply meet the bar, all 100 is going to be accepted. Because, basically, the bar is what they look for, you know, can, and can really predict if you're going to be successful in the classroom. I see. In the future, yeah. I'm sure, you know, they've been at it for a while. I'm sure they know exactly mm -hmm. what it is they're looking yeah. for. So, yeah. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, of course, uh, all this is available on, on the website, as you mentioned. Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's some, definitely some hints on how to, how to be a better applicant. Uh, yep. So we want to give, give that, ad, that web address to anybody who's listening? Yeah, sure. It's uh, www.teachformeric.org. Um, probably the best resource. Um, 
there's FAQ there, there's all the regional placement, like I said earlier, um, and then you can actually apply online. Oh, um, wow. The next application deadline is January 4th, um, and then there's one more after that. So those are the last two deadlines left. The first two already passed. Wow. So, but there's you know definitely two more opportunities for you to apply if you're a senior. So. Yeah, you know, just around the corner with uh, yeah. finals and everything coming yeah, up, might, might be a good time to start on that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so now I, I was I was kind of looking uh, some of the, sort of the sort of history of Teach for America, mm -hmm. and uh, seems that you know, uh, you know, maybe four or five years ago there's been there was funding issues and things like that that, that kind of came up, and uh, it, it seems that the Teach for America is just as strong as it ever was. Do you, do you happen to know how that was addressed and how you know how things look for the future? Yeah, I um I actually read the book a couple years back on. Um, the founder Wendy Cop and how like she kind of turned the organization around. At the beginning, there was a lot of funding be problems because there's um, we couldn't t the organization couldn't get enough donors to support. But then, as you know, as it kind of grew and as these all these businesses and private donors kind of realized the importance of this movement and the importance of this program um, as a whole, that's you know where most of the funding came from. Also, as Teach for America kind of um, seeked after government for funding you know, through the Department of Education and AmeriCorps and all that, I think it, it kind of set the foundation and kind of also built the foundation of this organization. And that's why um, right now there's you know lots of funding being poured in um, to kind of really grow this organization, mm -hmm. grow this movement. Um, Teach for America aspires to have double the number of core members um, compared to 2005 by 2010. Wow. So um, there's you know definitely high goals and aspirations right now, and there's definitely enough funding to do that, and that's why the recruitment campaigns all across um, different colleges across the nation are just really at full gear, um, really trying to recruit top prospects, you know, including here at MSU. So now I was looking up where where people can get placed. And I noticed that uh, Michigan's not on there. There's a, you know, I think that, uh -huh. the, that Detroit would be you know yes. a place that we would need Teach for America yeah, teachers. Detroit is, there... is definitely a site that Teach for America tried to get into. Um, um, probably ten, five, ten years back, but there's some tension or some political problems mm -hmm. between Teach for America and the, and the Detroit public school districts, and um, where they don't, they're just not allowing Teach for America to go in there, because, well, the Detroit, the need is great, you know, um, but there's just some political tensions that I believe, mm -hmm. I don't know the details, sure. but definitely, I'm sure Teach for America, you know, try to get in Detroit as its placement site. But um, other than that, there's you know definitely all the other needy places across the nation have have schools with Teach for America core members. Yeah. Well, it's not for lack of, of merit on uh, Teach for America's part. I've known folks that are involved in that and uh, AmeriCorps. It's a mm -hmm. I guess parent group you could say, and uh, yeah. I mean it, it really is just a great program. So uh, I want to thank you a lot for for coming on, telling us all about it again. That that website TeachForAmerica.org. Now the application deadline coming up on January fourth. Is that right? Correct. So you can go online and apply there if anyone's interested. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, Young Chen, uh, thanks so much for stopping yeah, by. Thank you. All right, and uh, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with more Impact Exposure in just a moment. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. At the football game, Jim shows the telltale signs of being wasted. He starts flexing for the camera. He refers to his muscles as gunboats. He screams, how's this for a halftime show? Jim streaks the field. It's easy to tell if you've had way too many to drive. But what if you've had just one too many to drive? Never underestimate just a few. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, the Ad Council, and this station. 
For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Prime where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Sunday nights, check out Sit or Spin from 8 to 10 p.m., where you can voice your opinion on what new music we play here on the Impact. Only on Impact Primetime. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9, The Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure. All right, and we're back with more Impact Exposure. We're just speaking with uh, Yang Chen from uh, Teach for America. If you happen to miss any of that and you want to catch up, uh, of course, we do post all of our shows on uh, our, our website at impact89fm.org. The uh, uh, podcast link will take you right to all of our Exposure podcasts. Uh, moving uh, on right now, we're uh, switching gears, speaking with a group, from, uh, or a group of folks from the Peppermint Theater, uh, excuse me, Peppermint Creek Theater Company. I'd try and get that out. Thanks so much for, for coming by, everybody. Thank you. Thanks for so now we just had you on a short while ago to talk about another production, but now you're uh, you've got a whole new one coming up. Is that right? Yes, this one is "I Am My Own Wife," a one-man show. Excellent. Go ahead and tell us what uh, "I Am My Own Wife" is about. It is about the life story of Charlotte von Malsdorf, who lived during the uh, Nazi and communist regime. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, and um, lived was born Lothar Burfeld, but lived as Charlotte von Malsdorf, lived openly as a woman, and collected antiques and artifacts, uh, saved a lot of music, uh, even buildings restored, um, and then received one of the highest honors that they give. And it came out after that that she may have conspired with those repressive regimes, and that's how she was able to survive. So sort of leaves it up to the audience yeah. as to guilt and innocent, um, betrayal, what was real, what, what wasn't. Yeah, sort of leaving them out, leave it up to them to decide uh, their opinions on that. It's very interesting. So now, this is a true story, is that right? It is. Very interesting. Uh, now, how, how was this story, uh, how, how was it brought together? Was it, was it written by Charlotte, or was this something that other folks kind of came together to re research? It's, that's a good question. It was written by Doug Wright, who mm -hmm. actually appears mm -hmm. in the play itself. It's... Um, his journey, his discovery of the story, his interviews with her, and uh, it's a one-man show, so Doug is, and Charlotte, they're all played by J.D. Delosa, who plays about 40 different characters. Wow. It's, a, <laughs> it's quite a role for you. Yes, yeah, quite a role, is right. So, so uh, that's, that's got to be a pretty unique challenge to play so many different roles. Unique challenge, that's uh, one way to put it. Yeah, it's a daunting challenge as well, but once... Um, once you just got the feel, if I got the feel for everything, you know, just everything came really easy. It's the direction was great, script's great. Um, my first time working with Peppermint Creek, so that's that was great too. And uh, the audience has been very responsive. Hmm. And uh, but you know, it's it's been uh, been a great show so far, and I'm glad I'm glad I'm a part of it. So, a question for really for for everybody: what what was it about uh, this this particular piece that that caught your attention? Uh, also, go ahead and start with you. Like what? What I mean, it, it's a very unique story for sure. But, right. but beyond that, what what specifically? I mean, that I knew nothing about the story was one thing. Chad and I both were drawn to the material when we were selecting the season, mainly because of the impossibility of her existence, which is addressed in the script. But also as actors, I think um, the challenge of doing such a role, which demands the the actor um, use his whole instrument and mm -hmm. I mean if you appreciate the craft of acting it's probably one of the biggest challenges uh, to pull off um, and then you know it addresses the the issue of authenticity and living true to oneself 
and whether or not you have to compromise to do that. Um, and forgiveness, I think, as well. I mean, Margaret has done a lot of research on the story. I think she might be able to uh, add to that. Uh, Margaret, do uh, you want to care to add anything? Um, well, I, I don't know from an acting standpoint because I'm not. Um, <laughs> but when you start researching Charlotte, when you start reading her autobiography, watching documentaries on her, she is just one of those utterly charming people that you can't help but root for. Um, one of the lines in the, the play is, Berlin's own tranny granny. And I think that throughout the show, we've sort of come to regard her as a member of the family, really. Hmm. Um, you just, you can't help but love her. She's one of those characters that just sort of co- comes mm-hmm. through the years, basically. She's larger than life, but still extremely accessible, too. I see. And was that part of the, was that part of the interest, too, was just how, how interesting this character was? Well, for sure. I mean, her life story, you'll see in the play, but also the, the history. I mean, it's dense with history and really interesting information about um, the cabarets and uh, the underground life and lifestyles mm. that was going on, apparently right under the uh, right under the communist regime. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a, a segment of history that nobody ever talks about. At least nobody ever talked about it, it to me in school. And then to find out all of the, this wealth of information about something, and to quote the play again, a history we didn't know we had. Right. So now go, go ahead and give us an idea about what because it sounds like setting plays a pretty big role in this. Go ahead and tell us about what that that setting is. Um, well, the story sets out, she's, uh, she ranges from 10 to 16 during World War II, so Nazi Germany, she herself is not Jewish, but is still targeted because she's a transvestite and a homosexual, so there's, and her father's a Nazi. Oh, wow. So Another interesting through, twist, huh? Yes. Yeah. She goes through this, this whole segment in the play where it feels like every city that she goes to, that she runs to, is being bombed at the moment that she enters the city. So it's just this, this horrible sort of deluge of violence Mm -hmm. um and then she gets out of that only to be thrown in with with the stasi regime who are exactly the same and and they ask her to collaborate and when someone comes knocking on your door and says listen why don't you give us some information or we'll kill you right you don't have a whole lot of options you don't have a whole lot of options and she wasn't just protecting herself she had to protect all of her museum too which so, was this period in history that nobody knew anything about. Mm-hmm. So now the, the, the museum that you mentioned, uh, you, you mentioned a moment ago about uh, you, she, she collected a lot of different artifacts, things like that. What was, what was her collection? What was her museum about? Well, it's vast. I mean, uh, what I know is she, she really had an affinity um, towards just everything from the 1890s to, I believe, the 1910. 1900. Into the early 1900s. Gramophones, um, Clocks, grandfather clocks, um, loved American and British music. She just—I think she just was a collector of of everything. And then she also did restore the actual home. Well, in the play, it's one home um, with her own hands. But apparently, had done a number of restorations. And she talks about how by saving these things, she's saving the memory of the people who they belong to that were killed by these repressive regimes. Hmm. So she's she's allow, allowing history to live essentially. She's almost like a time capsule. Huh. Exactly. That's really. Yeah. yeah, that was one of the things that, that struck me as, as pretty interesting about this particular piece was that sort of that, that her life was spent saving history, and yet the whole piece is about sort of telling her history. Right. So it's sort of a I don't want to say ironic, but that you know definitely uh, you know have the, the story and, and the story of her and the story about her have a lot in common. Right. So uh, so now this this piece. Is this something that's being that's being brought about more recently? Is it something that's been told a lot over time? What's the what's the history of the actual piece itself? 
It was on Broadway in 2004, won the Tony Award and won the Pulitzer. So oh, it's wow. fairly recent work. Um, I believe, though, that Doug Wright started back in the early 90s um, with the project, with the interviews, and then working to get it to uh, its finished product. But, I see. Um, and it, it, it's been done in Ann Arbor, but I believe this is the only other production um, in Michigan, definitely in mid-Michigan, that's being done. Wow. So definitely a lot of credit to its name. Um, sounds like the Tony and the Pulitzer. Yeah. It, well, it's a brilliant, it's a beautifully written script that I think um, really smart and intelligent, but also very entertaining mm-hmm. um, for the audiences uh, to watch. And it, it's just a story that's told so well, judging from the audience response, it really sort of keeps you on the edge of your seat because you really do need to listen. Um, and it is fascinating. Yeah. So. Well, it sounds like a lot of uh, you know a lot of intrigue, I suppose. You know, a lot of conflicting sides on on the issue too. So there is um, now uh, talking to to the the star of the of the show. I guess I, I could get say. you can see that. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking a moment ago about sort of the, the challenge that the that this role presents to you, and of course all the other roles that you're you're taking on as well. Go ahead and walk us through how how you approach something like that. Well, there's no really good way to do it. Um, you just uh, Lewis and I work uh, relatively the same, so that was good. Uh, it just you know the in most plays uh, characters clues of their character are in the script, but for this show there really wasn't a whole lot. You know thanks to thanks to uh, Margaret for all the dramaturgy and all the research that she did, gave me a good base plan for uh, for Charlotte, and which is great because being the main character, there's only three really main characters in the show: Charlotte, uh, Doug Wright. And her her once lover uh, Alfred Kushner, uh, but all the rest of the characters. I mean, they're not they're not all fully developed characters, but you know, a lot of one liners in there. Mm. But it just it's just um, I work real pretty organically, so I just like to I like the motion to come from uh, from a natural place. And it was I'm kind of out of my comfort zone on this show, uh, like a <laughs> Neptune, because I have to make all these big huge choices. Um, but you know, just the combination of the way I work and uh, what Lewis the, on the new stuff that I'm trying with Lewis, you know, just it just kind of came together. And it really didn't for me didn't come to uh, didn't fuse correctly until the Monday before we opened. Now how do you mean fuse correctly? Just just the movements and the accents and even because I speak German in there as well. And that was I mean, there's in the show there's probably like all together like a half page of German that I actually speak. But man, I gotta tell you, <laughs> learn a half page of German is a lot harder than learning because the script's like seventy pages long itself you know i can learn lines that's sure. no problem with the german you know just and i speak a little bit myself it's definitely not a language that flows uh, no, off the they, tongue they, and they, you know it's uh it was it's just funny because uh half the time i knew what i was saying you know we we had we had a lady come in to uh donna she came in and helped with just uh, the basic translations and and uh margaret had a i don't know like a german translator on her microsoft or something <laughs> it's kind of uh, but you know, just just repetition, 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 and uh, just uh, a lot of positive feedback and a lot of line notes. Uh, but you know, somehow uh, we pulled it off, and I'm actually surprised that I pulled it off. But at the same time, I'm not surprised because there's just so much work uh, that went into it. Like when I saw, because we had to do it, uh, we did the space uh, perspective two. Uh, they had to come in and they had to build their own uh, lights and everything, and just just on that aspect of it, and it's such a, a technically daunting show as well as far mm-hmm. as sound cues and light cues go, um, all the work that's going into it, you know, it just it made me motivate my motivation even more because uh, all the work I was going into it was like I had to really do my part and get off book and sure. really really kind of make this a story, start, middle, and end. So now it sounds like there's a lot of firsts for you. It was like you mentioned the the German thing. I mean, uh, how you know. 
you, you kind of walked us through what you what you saw when you looked at this character and what you knew you had to do. Uh, what, what was your first impression when you were reading it? Like, what what jumped out at you as you were looking this over, deciding to to try out to apply for for the, for the presentation? A lot of information in okay. the show. It's an informational play, and uh, there's a lot of information. And I didn't um, the, this the, the subject matter about this the whole Nazi and the Stasi regime speaks to me not on a personal level, but you know, just a, that's a period of time we should never forget about. Mm-hmm. And it's always important to do a show like that. But the fascinating thing is this uh, Charlotte, uh, aka she was born Lothar Berfeld. Um, her father was a brutal Nazi. Uh, actually, they, they even they, I think they kicked him out of uh, the Reich for being too brutal. Wow! And only too Nazi, too brutal for the Nazis. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, gives no, you an idea. Sorry, not a good title. <laughs> no, not at all. And the fact that she lived openly. Uh, she told a story about one day she was walking through Berlin. Um, and she was very proud of the fact that she had her hair long and blonde, and she had her mother's house coat and the shoes of a girl, obviously a little boy, and then being, uh, uh, then she had, uh, bo- bombings began, and then uh, the Nazi, uh, the SS men came in, they lined her up for execution, and just, and just, and even in that face of, of that adversity, you know, she still st- stayed true to her, to herself, you know, that's the, the, the main theme of the show is courage, you know, mm-hmm. is courage to be yourself, you know, courage for Pitt McCrick to even, to put on a show like this is bold. Um, I'm not going to toot my horn too much, but courage myself for, for, for taking on a role like this, but just, just the character herself, you know, you can't, once you read that and really understand it, you know, I've grown to love Charlotte myself, and, uh, you know, it just—it's just such an intriguing character. You know, mm-hmm. you can't pass it up for for living thirty years as a thirty plus years as a tra- open transvestite yeah. for the, during the Nazi regime and the Stasi regime. You know, it just—it's just amazing. It's just yeah. amazing. Now, I mean, you mentioned a moment ago too about uh, uh, that. You know, the courage you said for for taking on this sort of uh, this sort of production. Uh, I was looking at the uh, the Peppermint Creek mission to uh, to address vital issues in society. What what a, what particular uh, issues within this presentation? And for for anybody that, that might have an answer to this, what do you was it you think that this uh, piece addresses? Well, you know, Lewis and I, when we were deciding, when we were trying to choose a season, we've we've read this we read this play earlier, and we tried to fit it into our season. But I think the the uh, hope when creating an entire season is to look that we're trying to hit as many issues as we can, you know, and I think that we oftentimes fall into um, similar headings like religion and sexuality and um, politics. politics. The big three. Um, yeah, you know, and, uh, and, and it's great because it's, it's great to live in a society where there are so many issues that still can divide people because that then creates really great literature like a play like this that then speaks to and hopefully can can speak to both sides you know and try to draw them together you know and so I think in in choosing this play for this season it was one of those things where this was an issue that like a lot of the plays in our season is very very specific and precise in that it speaks about one person yet also um, when you when you see the play as a whole speaks to a much bigger issue and I think all of our plays this season do that and and certainly I and my own wife does and so uh, this one being obviously very specific to Charlotte but yet also speaking to the time period you know of World War II and and the experience of people who are outcasts like um, transvestites and and the like so uh, so it certainly was it was an easy choice uh, as far as a play that we'd want to put on it was more of a matter of did it fit within our whole season as far as a diversity in shows, so. is there a, is there a larger theme for the for the the season itself? 
Yeah, well, yeah, we um we don't ever choose a theme and then pick plays. It's the other way around. Oh, we pick okay. plays and then choose a theme. <laughs> and so, the, uh, the, based on what we you know what we got, it sort of is <laughs> cheating. But uh, but it's worked so far. So no, I, uh, yeah, our theme this year is innocent betrayals, and I think um, you know. I mean, Lewis can speak, uh, or anyone else, I suppose, on how this play specifically falls into that. And I think that, you know, last year we had a, we had a similar um, enigmatic title uh, um, that also is kind of contradictory in itself, or an oxymoron, so to speak. But um, I think that that's sort of what we aim to do uh, with the theater that we're doing at Peppermint Creek, that being we don't, none of the plays really ever answer any questions. I and my own wife certainly doesn't. I mean, it never says this is right and this is wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but rather than, it more so poses situations and says you can decide what sure. you want, you know. And um, and so mm-hmm. I think that's where the innocent betrayals comes in. And I think that that's one of the main issues that we explore every season is the issue of ambiguity. And certainly in this play, it's, was she? Did she do it? Didn't she do it? If she did it, how bad was it? And I right. think that's something that that's really important to contemporary society. Yeah, collaboration versus versus survival is definitely not an, an easy issue to, exactly. to resolve. So yeah, exactly. Now, um, it, is what is the reason for that that preference for ambiguity? Is it just that it's it's easy otherwise, or, or what? What's the oh what's the no no no? I, I think that the reason is because I think that life is. Mm. ambiguous. I think that, you know, nothing is... I think we try to, in our society, very much make things black and white. And I don't think it is at all, in fact. And I think that's why... And that fits so great into a theatrical setting because theater um, survives or exists to put dramatic situations on stage where nothing is black and white, you know? So... uh, so no, I don't think that it's because it's easy at all. I don't think any of our places, by any means, are easy. I think that they, um, in fact, do the opposite. I think they pose really hard questions and, and situations. And but that's, but you know, both Lewis and I, and definitely in the people who are involved with Peppermint Creek that we're so lucky to have, they um, believe in that idea of posing those questions and engaging in that sort of dialogue. And so, in theater, is a catalyst. Oh, absolutely, yeah, and it's it's such a teaching tool, you know, mm-hmm. and. Um, away, because I think that people can absorb things a lot easier when you're sitting in an audience watching, as opposed to just being lectured to or or what have you. Sure. You know? so. Well, yeah, if you make it entertaining, they're bound to talk about right. it. Right, <laughs> and the show is certainly certainly entertaining. Well, it's 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 a it's a fascinating story, and it sounds like you guys really put you know every every ounce of effort you could into into making it you know worth telling, worth worth watching, worth talking about too. Thank you. Yeah, certainly. Uh, well, I want to thank you all for coming on. Tell us, uh, tell us about uh, I Am My Own Wife. Uh, now, showtimes, I have down there Thursday through Saturday, 8 p.m. and Sundays at 2 p.m. Is that still right? Uh, we, Thursday through Saturday. We don't have a Sunday performance. No Sunday performance. Just uh, su- Thursday through Saturday, yep, 8 p.m. Tickets quick. Of course. Well, tickets are available at 517-927-3016 or at uh, peppermintcreek.org. Again, that's my I Am My Own Wife. The shows are going on right now, are they not? Oh, yes. yes, at Excellent. Perspective 2. It's a new uh, facility in Old Town. Great, okay. great area of um, Lansing. Cool, yeah, and that's, uh, I have down 319 East Grand River in Old Town. That's Fantastic. it. Fantastic. Well, again, thanks, everybody, for coming by. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. All right, and we're going to take another short break, and we'll be back with more Impact Exposure in just a moment. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. For some high school students, school can be a dangerous place. A lot of gamers look at you as a game member, too. For some, just being in school can be a struggle. I wouldn't go to school. I didn't care about what my mom said. My mom would tell me, like, what are you doing for yourself? You're not doing nothing. But despite all the obstacles, inside every high school student is a graduate. People look down on you if you don't have a diploma. I want to graduate because they say I won't. Go to BoostUp.org and find out how you can help a friend, a son, a daughter finish high school. BoostUp.org. 
Brought to you by the U.S. Army and the Ad Council. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Prime where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Tuesday nights from 8 until midnight, the Impact's progressive torch and twang brings you the best in alternative country and grassroots music. Only on Impact Primetime. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9, The Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure. All right, and we are back with more Exposure. Uh, we were just speaking with some folks in from the Peppermint Creek Theater Company talking about their current production of I Am My Own Wife. If you missed any of that, of course, we do put up all of our uh, interviews on our website at impact89fm.org. You can find out how to get some tickets to that show at peppermintcreek.org or by calling 517-927-3016. Uh, our, our last uh, subject for the evening, we're uh, sitting down here with uh, Jonathan from uh, Boink Researchers. Uh, Jonathan, thanks for so much for stopping by. Oh, thanks for being here. So now, uh, Boink Researchers has kind of, a, kind of an interesting name. Go ahead and tell us what Boink is all about. Um, Boink is a program that you can use on your computer that you can uh, download off the internet, which allows you to utilize the extra power that your computer has that you don't use while you're maybe surfing the net or writing a paper. It allows you to donate the rest of that power to scientific research. And uh, it's really uh, something that's similar to a larger program that you may have heard already, uh, Folding at Home, which is uh, actually just got on the Guinness World Records for breaking the pedoflop barrier. Oh, what exactly is that? The pedoflop barrier is a... Uh, Trillion computations per second. Wow. So it's faster than the, it's twice as fast as the supercomputer that currently came out today, is the Blue Gene L. So. Jeez. So now then that's by taking all these computers and, and taking together all their, their idle time, basically. Is exactly. That right? uh, most computers only take about 10 to 15% of their uh, computing power. And then people with the dual cores and the quad cores that are coming out now. Uh, really, you're not utilizing a, even a fraction of your uh, actual c- uh, capabilities. So, I mean, it's allowing you to put it to a really good use instead of sitting there just wasting a little bit of energy. And uh, there's actually a lot of great topics out there. Some of them actually coming up are uh, uh, solar panel. They're trying to create some new, uh, more efficient solar panels out there. And so there's climate modeling that's been turned in some of that information to uh, the G8 convention a few years back. Hmm. Um, actually, just recently, there was an article in uh, Nature magazine, uh, November 8th issue, actually. Uh, Rosetta at Home, which is a protein folding, sort of like the uh, folding at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, that came out with David Baker with this high resolution, so they can make more accurate uh, models, so they reduce the amount of lab time needed. Wow. Yeah, I was looking over some of the list of these, the, the projects that uh, Boink is involved with. There's, uh, you, you mentioned there, uh, I'm, and I'm not scientifically minded very much, but uh, uh, basically the, you know, the protein folding, they're, they're looking for how to model protein more accurately, is that right? Yeah, uh, taking basically what Rosetta at Home does is they're taking from the molecule sequence and just using like the uh, sequence there to determine what it will shape when it's an actual uh, 3D space. Hmm. So instead of just not knowing how it will react to different things, they're able to model interactions between drugs and that molecule and other disease research and drug research. So Hmm. helps out in a lot of the areas. So just basically they're trying to get a 3D model of of these proteins in, but they need a lot of computers to do it, essentially. Yeah, they said about a couple million hours of computing time. Wow. 
And then, yeah, and, and with the, the computers that are involved, that's that's even more so. I would think with the supercomputers they've got going, I mean, that's a lot of that's a lot of hours. Yeah, they actually uh, borrowed the uh, Blue Jeans supercomputer for a while to do that, but um, it's actually Boink is allowing people to uh, researchers to access supercomputing power without having to pay for that time. Mm. So there's resources that are already out there, which are we're, right now they're only using a fraction of the world's computing power, and it's equal to approximately the blue gene supercomputer. So if we could get more people to uh, run the program, it actually would create a larger computing power and allow for research in certain areas, and you choose the areas that you help out sure. to uh, complete the research. So now looking at, like I mentioned, the list, there's there's the protein one, there's uh, SETI at home is one of the more interesting ones I found. Uh, that's, uh, why don't you go ahead and tell us what that is? SETI at Home is uh, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Mm -hmm. It was originally funded back in the early 90s by the U.S. government, and uh, they used the radio wave signals coming in from space to uh, search for different uh, sources and sig of signals coming that might be a, of uh, intelligent uh, origin. And currently they've moved on to use light pulses and expanding their whole coverage of the sky. But that's actually where the Boink originally uh, came from. It mm -hmm. was the idea of using people's computers via a screensaver, and uh, once they lost their, uh, they didn't lose their funding, but they, they discontinued funding due to other ventures that the government wanted to follow. Uh, Study at Home came up with the idea to expand the ability of uh, the use of people's computers. Instead of donating your time just to one project, uh, Boink is actually allowing you to choose multiple projects, and being open source, it allows for people to collaborate in the development and the expansion and uh, utilization of all the computers. Wow, yeah. So, I mean, you know, you can, you can help uh, scientists with proteins and with uh, searching for extraterrestrials. I mean, what, what else can, I mean, what other projects are involved with it? Um, there's uh, prime number search is actually a pretty popular one if you uh, ever know that they're looking for the largest prime and, you know, it's continuing on. Um, there's projects, basically, you think of an interest area and you can come up with something. Uh, just recently I saw on one of their newsletters Somebody out in California wants to use the new IBM laptops with the accelerometers in them to uh, f locate the earthquakes. Across oh, wow. The, yeah. So finding a way to... I mean, how, now, how does that work, <clears throat> trying to predict an earthquake? Well, they said that the uh, accelerometers and the computers were so accurate that just the computers resting idle around the uh, California area, they could use the small predictions of each of them to send back their signals and uh, come up with the location and the uh, magnitude, and do studies of like where exactly at origin. So now, what is an accelerometer? An accelerometer basically tells uh, if there's movement in a direction. Oh, I mean, like within your within your laptop? Yeah, actually, the IBM laptops have it for if you drop your uh, computer, it will actually move the uh, head off the uh, hard drive, so it doesn't oh, okay. damage the hard I think drive. My MacBook has that too. It's a possibility. Yeah, yeah. Uh, since so they can, but it's that sensitive that they can. That's what I read in that. Wow. Uh, Newsletter. So it'd be basically, you know, wirelessly connecting all these laptops to find out if there's a small tremor before an earthquake. Yes. Wow. Well, it's, it's more of the uh, study of where it originally and how it forms and the uh, traveling, how it travels across the... Uh, and they didn't really specify too much sure. on that. Uh, that was actually just one that they talked about. That hasn't actually been into production plans. But there's many different universities that utilize this, mm -hmm. and that's what Boink Research is, is trying to do is have MSU start to use this, so trying to get the awareness out for uh, these faculty and the students here to help out with the doing the computations and sure. also with the uh, maybe sparking an idea for 
one of the researchers to uh, utilize the power. So what kind of folks are you looking for to get involved? Or is it, you know, is it computer tech-minded people? No, actually, it's it's a simple program that uh, anyone can go to the just search B-O-I-N-C mm-hmm. on the Internet and Google, and uh, you'll come up with Berkeley's website where you can read more about it and download and uh, choose projects, read more projects. There's actually 40-plus projects in either in development or they're already uh, out in full production. There's one of them out there. It's really cool. It has a great screensaver of a constellation uh, map of the sky, where they have uh, they're searching for pulsar stars, and it's called Einstein at Home. And they're actually trying to prove one of Einstein's theories about uh, gravity waves. Oh wow, cool! Yeah, so so basically, and you don't need to know anything about these projects or basically do anything. Actually, the great part about it is they're scientists, and they usually have a lot of administrators for the forums on each of the websites that you can choose on the projects mm-hmm. and you can go there and you can ask questions about the science that's being done or you want to find out more about anything in that area they'll have either other members that are going on that know about this or the actual scientists will respond with information and let you uh, basically communicate with them and learn a whole bunch more about the topics that you want to find out more. Wow, yeah it's a great resource especially <clears throat> for folks that are involved with the school here and might need to communicate uh, you know, for a school project, a paper, something like that. Actually great... there's somebody that just started writing a paper on Boink itself oh, wow. and uh, they were asking about how they can get contact and they got emails back uh, a whole bunch of postings saying oh you can get a contact with this person, this person, this person and here's their in about an hour after oh. they posted. That's, so. Yeah, that's that's a great resource, as a matter of fact. Uh, so if if someone wants to get involved with Boink, but they don't have, you know, the 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 tech skills in mind, maybe they're uh, you know a communications major or something like that. What what can they do to to help out? Uh, they can just if they want to find out how to install it on their computer, they can contact uh, Boink researchers at boinc at msu edu, or they can come to one of our meetings after the uh, kickoff show, which is on Thursday. Um, basically, we're here to help. Uh, educate and promote the use of Boink, and um, just help out with the whole idea right now. Cool. So yeah, you mentioned there's the the, the <clears throat> kickoff on Thursday. What's what's going on there? Uh, Thursday in B one hundred two Wells Hall at six o'clock, I will be given a presentation where I will uh, walk you through about what basically Boink is, show some uh, screensavers that have been done, some of the information about where it originated, and some pictures about other different projects that are coming out. Cool. Now, so what? what's personally, what got you involved with Boink in the first place? What kind of piqued your interest? Well, I've always been interested in computers and science and research, so I just found out uh, after watching the movie Contact, mm-hmm. which actually showed SETI at home on their, one of their computers, uh, I was like, that's really neat. I wonder if that's actually real. So I searched online and found that. So I downloaded that. I've been doing that since the late 90s and migrated over to Boink after I got a new computer. I've actually been running Boink on my computer for three years, and it's a laptop, and it's not dead, so I mean, it's running great still. <laughs> well, so, But I'm sure there's a lot of other folks who just have, you know, casually run it. What what got you from the point of just like, you know, oh, I'll just throw it on my computer to like, now you're you're giving presentations and you're actively you know promoting it. What, what got you to that stage? Um, Just at one point, I was like, you know what? If we get more people running this, we can help a lot more. Uh, ideas in the future, and especially since it's like has interest areas that sort of correspond to so many different student groups, so many different people, that a lot of people that I've mentioned this to, they're just like, really, you can do that? <laughs> so I mean, I was out there, I was like, okay, I'll just uh, I'll start a student group and see how this works, and 
I've had a very positive response from uh, the people that actually listen to it and understand what it is. It's hard to get the idea out there initially. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's something to kind of wrap your mind around at first, it seems, but then it, it, it takes so little to get involved with it. I mean, install a, uh, you know, a little program on your computer and just let it go. Basically. Yeah, actually, it's really great about that, too, is uh, it runs on the Linux, the Windows, and the Macs. Mm. So anyone, really, that has a computer can get involved. And uh, it's so simple, especially with the newer computers that are coming out, that you can install it and you forget about it. You, my friends who've installed it with their newest computers don't even know it's running. Oh, wow. It Is runs that... in the background. You have two settings. You can run it in the background or you can have it run while you're not using it. So oh, I see. Really, I really, if you have a high-enough power computer, which is most computers today, it just runs in the background and you're constantly doing work. And, hmm. and the, it, some people like argue that, what about the energy consumption? Sure. And uh, really, my response to that is, you think about your computers just sitting there most of the time. You click on something, and it just uses that processing power for that short second or millisecond, actually. And uh, you, you don't really do much more with that power. So, I mean, while your computer's on, the extra power that you donate to this research is more beneficial than not running it. Sure. Well, I mean, not only that, you know, applica- uh, or, you know, appliances in your home use a lot of power even when they're off. So, I mean, when, if it's on... You know, you may as well be uh, putting it to some good use. I mean, that's the great thing about uh, these distributed computing, volunteer computing things, is uh, they're designed for you to run them when you normally would use it. Mm-hmm. And then when you're not using it, just turn it off like it's normal and it resume from where it stopped. Excellent. Well, uh, I want to thank you so much for, for coming in and telling us all about, uh, about Boink. This is really interesting. Uh, so if, if anyone's interested uh, to learn more, of course, you'll be hosting, hosting your uh, uh, kickoff this Thursday from uh, 6 to 6.45 over in B102 Wells Hall. Is that right? Yes, it is. Very cool. And, of course, more, more info is available at Boink, B-O-I-N-C, at msu.edu uh, or online at uh, msu.edu slash the uh, tilde and then B-O-I-N-C. And, of course, you guys are on uh, Facebook as well, just like everybody else. Yes, we are. Excellent. Well, thanks so much again for coming in. Thank you for me. All right, well, this has been Impact Exposure. Uh, we're going to leave you tonight with a special report from uh, MSU journalist Ryan Secord. He uh, t- took a look at the state children's health care insurance program uh, and specifically how it affects uh, Michigan State University here. Uh, he got, has some great interviews with uh, Debbie Stabenow and uh, Mike Rogers as well. So we're going to take a look at that in just a moment, uh, courtesy of our news department here at the Impact. Again, uh, thanks a lot for, for joining us here on Impact Exposure. Of course, all of our shows are available online at, at uh, ex- excuse me, at impact89fm.org click on the uh, podcast button and uh, all the exposure is on there for you to listen to thanks again for for, uh, checking us out tonight and uh, I'm going to leave you with that report from Ryan Secord right here on Impact 89FM Poor children in Michigan are in danger of losing their health insurance. The State Children's Health Insurance Program or SCHIP has provided health insurance for low income children for 10 years it will end this year unless Congress takes action Three weeks ago, Congress approved a bill to extend SCHIP by $35 billion over the next five years. However, President Bush has vetoed it. Democratic Senator from Michigan Debbie Stabenow said that she supports the SCHIP bill. She finds it hard to believe that the President would have vetoed it. Dennis Smith is the director for the Center of Medicaid and State Operations. He oversees Medicare and Medicaid programs used by the states. Smith says that SCHIP does not need $35 billion that the bill calls for. He says that the money called for in the bill was based on an amount from a tobacco tax increase. Smith says Congress should have found out how much money the program needed rather than assigning a number based on the money available. Smith says the new bill extends beyond the program's initial intent. According to Smith, several states are extending SCHIP funds to include adults. Michigan is one of these states. He says that more Michigan dollars are going to provide health care to adults than it does to children. 
Michigan estimates that they will spend twice as much of their S-chip dollars on adults as they will on children. He also claims that this money is going to childless adults, not parents. Republican representative from Michigan Mike Rogers says that there are 113,000 childless adults in S-chip. Rogers also points out that the new bill allows for S-chip money to go to children who are not from low-income families. He says that 1.6 million kids whose parents can afford health care will move up under S-chip. It crowds out the lower-income kids who are having a hard time finding and getting enrolled in the program. You know, you run out of money, those kids don't have an opportunity to get on it. According to Smith, this crowding out effect will raise medical costs for everyone. He says that when people drop their coverage, health insurance costs goes up. Smith and Rogers agree that the new bill should address this issue before it can be approved. The final issue with the bill is the possibility that money would be going to illegal immigrants. Mike Rogers states that one out of every five S-chip dollars goes to an illegal immigrant, and most likely a childless adult. But Stabenow does not agree with this. She says that none of the money goes to immigrants, not even legal ones. Both parties agree that S-chip needs to continue. They say that children deserve to have health insurance, but the S-chip money needs to go to low-income children. Stabenow says that the U.S. government needs to step up to help these families. Smith and Stabenow now agree that all American citizens deserve coverage. But S-CHIP is designed for low-income children first. As soon as these problems get resolved, the president will be willing to allow the bill to go through. Both Republicans and Democrats see the need for S-CHIP. There's just some adjustments needed for the bill to be where it should be. For Impact, this is Ryan Secord.